First of all, Finner, congratulations with the 2019 Nils Klim Prize. This prize is awarded annually to Nordic scholars under the age of 35 for outstanding contributions within the arts, humanities, social sciences, law or theology. And it's a real pleasure that this prize goes to a philosopher this, um, this year. So actually, um, in 2017, the uh, Holberg laureate was philosopher Honora O'Neill. And she has addressed um, the claim that there is a decrease of trust in our democracies. And in her response, she suggests that trust in itself cannot be a goal. The goal is to trust the trustworthy and not the untrustworthy. And in your Nils Klim seminar earlier this week, you tried to address a, a specific uh, variant of this, of this issue. And the topic of the seminar was, why trust scientists? And so can I first just ask what motivated you to, to pick this particular topic? Uh, right, so th thank you. And um, my, my motivation for picking that topic was that uh, I felt that there was a tension between uh, a distrust that I think is unreasonable in certain uh, sciences and, and scientific uh, claims and theories, such as uh, the claim that uh, climate change is caused by human activity to a large extent. Um, on the one hand, there's that I think unreasonable distrust and on the other hand there is some uh, reason to be distrustful of some sciences or some scientists or some scientific claims. Um, I mean we often hear uh, claims in the media that such an, eating such and such foods will, will cause you to get cancer or not get cancer or whatever it is and uh, Many of those studies are not so uh, trustworthy, I believe, um, and the, the same might be true of certain uh, claims made in, in certain fields that are, have, are now undergoing a, a crisis, a replication crisis. Um, so there's that tension between, on the one hand, there's unreasonable skepticism about some uh, scientific claims, and there's, on the other hand, uh, I think maybe we ought to be more uh, skeptical about other scientific claims. So. So the problem that I wanted to, to tackle in the seminar um, was how to tell which of the scientific claims we should believe or, or trust, if you will, um, from those that we shouldn't believe or should, and shouldn't trust. Uh, a wholesale response that just says we should trust scientists more than we do wouldn't really do, I think, because there are those scientific claims and you might even say those scientists that we shouldn't place so much trust on. Um, so that was the motivation for, for the topic. So you mentioned the, the replication scandal that was mentioned in the seminar by yourself and also by some of the other contributors. Could you just say a little bit about, more about that? Well, the, the replication crisis is, uh, is the situation that uh, many scientific findings that have been reported and published as, as, uh, you know, and claimed to be secure truths um, have turned out not to be replicable. That is to say, you, you try to do the same experiment again, um, or the, the same right, um, systematic observation, or however it is that you, uh, that you uh, argue for those claims, and it turns out not to, 
uh, not to replicate. So you don't get the same result again. Um, and so that suggests that uh, maybe the original study wasn't so reliable, and maybe there was, uh, maybe it, it, that's, that's for systematic reasons, such as just the, the particular statistical uh, methodology that's used, or maybe that's because of uh, just outright, uh, in some cases, maybe just you know, incompetence or, or, or overzealousness, or, you know, people trying to do too much with too little. Um, there's uh, people seeking funding and, and so on and so forth. And you know, science is a show social enterprise, so it's not really that surprising that we find scientists overstepping or, or making claims that they're not really entitled to because uh, that's often part of how you get funding or get the next position or get the next publication or whatever it is that you need to do. So, um, uh, yeah, so there's that, there's that problem, I think, in science, and, and I think we need to be honest about it. Even people like me who are kind of admirers of, of science, and, you know, we, I see science as the, as the uh, maybe the, one of the most, uh, uh, one of the most uh, significant achievements of, of humankind, really, but I, I do think we need to acknowledge that there, there are some problems in, in the way that science is set up, especially having to do with the with the various sort of incentives and the structures that we have in, in science. That's interesting. So I'm, I'm wondering, um, so, so there is the aspect, the, the mechanisms of science itself, but then there's also some external factors like how the media reports on scientific findings. And we often hear scientists complain that once their, um, their findings are reported in the media, they're reported in misleading ways, in ambiguous ways, maybe they're exaggerated or used for particular um, purposes. Yes. Um, do you think that that's part of the problem? I think that's definitely part of the problem, and, and, and that interacts in an interesting way with, uh, with scientists themselves. So uh, in some cases, I mean, you can place the blame on, on journalists, but I think in some cases uh, the scientists themselves are also to blame for you know, often that's a, that's a way to fame in science, to report something to the journalists or the media and then kind of rely on the journalist not knowing uh, quite uh, how to tell uh, the reliable results from those that aren't as reliable. So I think in some cases researchers can exploit the fact that uh, journalists aren't in a, in a great uh, situation to tell which of the scientific findings are reliable and which ones aren't. Um, that said, I also think that the media needs to take some responsibility here, and uh, they need to take seriously their role uh, to, in, in communicating scientific claims and, and you know, have on staff science journalists, for example, which is something that, at least where, where I'm from in Iceland, which is a small country, I don't think we have a single science journalist, and, and, uh, and in many countries there's maybe just a few, or I mean, at least far too, too few, I think. Uh, so I think the media needs to take some responsibility there uh, as well. Um, um, but, but, it's, but it's a hard problem to solve because, I mean, uh, the, the problem is that, that scientists uh, have access to a type of evidence and a type of argumentation that just isn't, uh, isn't something that ordinary people and even journalists who would even, even those who would specialize in science journalism don't really have have an ability to, uh, or, or access to, an ability to evaluate. So, so uh, we're in a tricky situation uh, where um, there's a, 
there's a kind of a, sm a small group of people or the scientists uh, that we we need to place a lot of trust in them doing things <laughs> in the right way including how they report their findings uh, to the media to the public directly uh, and of course this this is exploited then by uh, by people and, and in some cases powerful corporations and uh, institutions that uh, are trying to uh, create doubt about scientific claims that are in fact quite quite secure so for example I mean it's a well-known case of how this uh, strategy of misinformation and creating doubt has been used by the tobacco industry to create doubt about uh, about the link between smoking and lung cancer and and also by the oil companies and the various sort of fossil fuel industry uh, in order to create doubt about climate change um, so uh, so a lot of the responsibility of course needs to be placed there where it sort of really belongs uh, but I, I, I do think we need to think about as a as a as a, as a community and, uh, and and as researchers uh, those of us who are, who are researchers need to think more about how we solve this problem in a responsible way uh, and I don't think I don't think at all it will do to just to place the blame on the public who uh, whose only access to information about these things is the media um, and they, they can't really be blamed for not knowing <laughs> which claims to tell, uh, which, which claims to believe and which claims to, to uh, be skeptical about when their access uh, to these claims is through the media and, uh, and it's often very extremely flawed. So I need, I, I do think that we researchers need and we sort of people who are and, and researchers and scientists need to take much more responsibility here um, and not, as, as you sometimes see, kind of place the blame on the public. Oh, the public is so ignorant, they don't understand what we're doing, not, and so on and so forth. So, so this, this leads into the type of uh, responses to this question that you were um, outlining, outlining in, in your own seminar. Uh, talk. Could you just remind us about these three responses and, and say something about what you yourself favor? Yes. Uh, so, so in, in my, my seminar talk, I, I sort of outlined three ways of responding to this issue of like, separating the, uh, the trustworthy from the non-trustworthy parts of science, really. Those could be scientists or scientific claims or, uh, or something else. And uh, I mean, one, one way to try to solve the problem would be to educate the, uh, the lay people, that, that is to say the non-scientists, uh, uh, more about how science works and more about which scientific claims are in fact correct and, and so on and so forth. Um, I think that's, that might be a part of the solution but I, I don't think it can be the whole solution for the simple reason that there's going to be some limits to how much uh, uh, an ordinary person who isn't uh, working on a particular type of research day to day is going to be able to know about that and even understand the arguments and the types of evidence that's being offered. Um, I think with increasing specialization in science, it's a pipe dream to think that it will ever be possible to educate the public in, in the way that they would understand all scientific claims and the evidence for them. So I think that might be part of the solution. It might be independently, <laughs> independently desirable for people to know a little bit more science and how it works, but I don't think that can solve the problem entirely. Um, so that's one, one possibility and I, I don't think it would quite work. Uh, another possibility would be for, for scientists to step, to step up and 
sort of and whenever they make scientific claims to kind of really explain why they why they take that to be true and, and wh what the evidence is for that claim and so forth. And again, I think that might be independently desirable and maybe part of the solution. Um, I, do think, I do think it's good for scientists to kind of engage more with the public and, and, and talk more about what the arguments are uh, for their claims and what the evidence is. But again, I think, uh, I think there's a, a certain kind of a problem there that it really just pushes the problem back because then uh, the public will need to know what kind of arguments or, and what kind of evidence being offered to them uh, uh, to, to, to trust. Like, wh which ones of these scientists who are telling them that they have arguments for their claims should they, should they trust? And unless the, the public already, or the, the lay people already know uh, how to tell the good parts of science from the bad parts of science, they, they won't really be in a position to, to, to do that. Um, so, so then what I wanted to uh, explore was, was a third way of, of thinking about these issues or, a, or trying to solve this problem to some extent, which is to uh, think about the various bits of information that we have about how science or how particular bits of science works that isn't just the scientific claims themselves or even the evidence that's being offered for those, those claims. So, for example, uh, I pointed out that we, sometimes we have information about how reliable a particular uh, scientist or a scientific field has been in the past. So is this, a, is this the kind of scientist that keeps making claims that turn out to be false, for example? Um, so you can use that kind of information to, as a proxy for how likely this person is to be telling the truth in this case. Um, and similarly, uh, we can use uh, information about sort of how uh, um, how diverse in the sense of uh, of coming having different backgrounds and using different methods is the scientific group or community that is making a certain scientific claim um, and I think the more the more diversity of methodology and of of, sort of background and education in the in that in that community uh, if that community kind of agrees on something, then I think that's a, that's a reason to have some trust that more than, than, they would, uh, than you would otherwise have. Um, and so, so really those kinds of things that are maybe a little bit uh, different than you would normally think of as the sort of things that you ought to, uh, uh, ought to use as grounds for belief. Um, not maybe very scientific in a certain way. Um, it's not the sort of arguments or, or grounds for belief that scientists would themselves use, and I think they shouldn't use those kinds of beliefs themselves, or grounds for beliefs themselves. But I think the public, because they don't, they can't really evaluate the evidence itself and the, and the scientific claims, um, because that would be, uh, well, it's never going to be uh, uh, possible really. They need to use those kinds of uh, proxy arguments or, or proxy reasons to evaluate scientific claims. So, so I noticed that several of the speakers of the seminar um, made this distinction between trusting the individual scientists and trust in the scientific community. So I take it that's part of the, the story here. Yes, I think, yes, very much so. Um, I think one of the things that we're uh, well, slowly but steadily realizing about science that it's, it's, is that it's a social enterprise. Um, it's really 
really shouldn't do very much for us at all when an individual scientist claims that something is true. What's really impressive is when a, an entire community claims that something is true. And that's not just because, you know, many is better than one, but it's also because that's the science works by someone proposing something and then another person critiquing that and the third person critiquing the critique and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so when you have, when you reach a kind of an equilibrium where people have come to agree on something, that's a really special thing in science. Um, and, uh, and it's at that point that I think we should uh, start trusting the claims that are, that are being made. When individual scientists make pronouncements about this or that being true, I think that's not really something that we should see as a very good grounds for beliefs. Uh, so really what, what's important is whether the community agrees on something, I think, uh, rather than individual scientists. So, so in a sense, we shouldn't trust the authority of individual scientists, and I think that's the sort of the grain of truth in, a, in the uh, claim that you often see that you, know, you shouldn't, shouldn't just take someone's say-so for something. You shouldn't just believe it because someone says so. Um, but it's, it's different when you have a, a whole community that agrees, more or less, on something, and you know about that community. It's a sort of community where things don't get to be accepted into this extent unless it's been really examined and critiqued and in the, in the end found to be a solid, uh, a solid claim, I suppose. So, so you, you, you said that this is the sort of um, reasons that the public could use, but not the scientists mm. themselves. But the, the consensus that you're referring to, would you consider that consensus evidence for the claims? It would be evidence in a, in a certain sense, yes. I mean, in, I, I sometimes say in an extended sense of, this, of, the, of the term evidence. Um, it wouldn't be the kind of evidence, as, you, as you're alluding to, I think, that the scientists do or even should, I think, use to make their arguments. It would be a very strange scientific paper, for example, that, that, uh, that, that just had the argument, oh, we all believe this and therefore, <laughs> therefore it's true. Uh, that's, that's not how things work and it's not how things should work. So scientists, uh, and here I'm, I'm actually uh, indebted to my, uh, my seminar participant, my co-participants co in the seminar, Liam Kofi Bright, I think, who, who made this point, I think, very nicely in, in our seminar, that scientists should go on a restricted, they should, sort of, they should go on a restricted uh, uh, set of evidence. I mean, restricted in the sense that it should be scientific evidence. It's the sort of evidence that's, uh, the, that is public in a certain way. It's not about what other people believe. It's about results of experiments or observations and that kind of thing. Um, and that's, that's good. Uh, if, if scientists themselves were to make the kind of <laughs> arguments that I'm uh, suggesting that the public should make, then I think the whole thing would in a certain sense break down. Um, scientists, I mean, when they are doing science, they should go on the scientific evidence and then reach a consensus based on that evidence. And then once, once they have, I think that can be used by the public or even by maybe other scientists in a different field and that sort of thing um, in order to build on or, or, or trust. So uh, it's a little bit of a tricky situation. I hope I'm, I'm getting across my point here correctly. But I think when we reach conclusions, let's say, um, as experts, uh, we accept something as experts, we're in a different role than when we just, as, as individuals or as people in a community, kind of uh, form our beliefs about something. So we have responsibilities as experts that, to do things in a certain way, uh, think about 
a certain uh, uh, subset of our evidence, as opposed to just our, the whole of our evidence, in order for our expert opinion to be usable by the rest of the people in our, our community. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be trustworthy. So, in your um, speech at the ceremony, you said something that I thought was very interesting and also very nicely um, put, that I think is a sort of indicator of work that you've done. I want to ask you about that. You said, we owe it to others to think for ourselves. I thought that was beautifully put. Oh, thank you. Um, well, yes, my, my point there is um, that um, it's connected to what we've been speaking about. Um, so, in many situations, I'll, I'll know, for example, that you're just as likely to be right about something as I am. Um, or maybe I, I even think that you're more likely to be right than I am. Um, and so in that sort of situation, you might sort of wonder, why should I, why should I make up my own mind about this thing? Why shouldn't I just trust Ole? Um, he's been right about these sorts of things in the past. I'm usually wrong, so why not just trust Ole? And then, and that, that might be true in certain cases that you ought to trust Ole or trust someone else. But then you might start to think, well, isn't that always the case? Can't you always find someone who will be more reliable than yourself? I mean, some geniuses won't, won't be in that situation, but, but many people will. And so then you start, should I ever think for myself? Shouldn't I always just be believe whatever people tell me? I'll find some expert and he or she will tell me what to, what to think and then that's it. I never, I never need to think anything through for myself. We just always defer onto yeah. the expert. Yes. Um, and, um, and so my, my question in, in this part of my research was, why isn't that true? And I take it not to be true. I, I think that wouldn't, be, that wouldn't be a right way to proceed. It's not, certainly not very philosophical. Um, it's not, a, not the sort of thing that philosophers are likely to recommend. And in fact, many famous philosophers have recommended the opposite, to make up, that you should make up your own minds about things like Immanuel Kant and Rene Descartes and those sorts of things. So, um, so why, why is that? And uh, my answer is that, well, if you, especially if you're the sort of person who is, uh, who is uh, meant to be an expert or meant to be, say, a researcher or a scientist, and you're, you're, you're sort of, uh, your opinion is taken seriously in, a, in society, or the opinion of the group of people that you're, you're part is taken seriously in a society, um, especially if you're in that situation, then, um, you as a group of this community that you're a part of will not be any more reliable than the one person that everyone defers to um, if you all defer to that person. Whereas if you all make up your own minds about these things, each of these experts or these people in this community or group, if you make up your own minds, then that group or community will be much, actually much more reliable than even the most reliable individual within the community. So the reason why uh, each one of us should think independently is so that we as a community will be more reliable and then groups like this, you can, then they can be deferred to by people outside the group uh, about what to, what to believe about certain things. So, yes, so, so that, that that reminds me of something that you also said um, earlier in discussion, namely that it's kind of a, a sign of healthiness of a, of a community, for example, a community of experts, that there is a minority that disagrees, even if 
you know, a large majority holds some, you know, one particular theory. Yes, that's, I think that's right. And uh, it's a sign of healthiness in the sense that, or in, in, in the way that um, when you know that some people disagree in this community or group, then you, one of the things you know then is that disagreement is allowed, for example, and that you, you can reach different conclusions. It's not forbidden or somehow, uh, somehow uh, uh, prevented from happening by the structure of the, or the, even the norms, or the, uh, uh, the norms of the society in question. And so, uh, so some disagreement like that can be an indicator that there's, there's a certain diversity in the community, which again then should make you uh, trust that community a little bit more. Uh, so, and for this reason, perhaps paradoxically, um, um, I have argued and, and, uh, and, and, and believe that uh, a large supermajority, so say 90, 95% uh, agreement about something, can actually be a, a, a more reliable indicator of that thing being, being correct or truth um, than a 100% agreement about something. So w when you have that sort of situation, it's kind of like when you learn about a Russian election, where you see, oh, in this, this country or this community, 100% of the voters uh, actually voted for this one candidate. Oh, what a, what a surprise, uh, what a coincidence, what, how, how popular that person t uh, must be, and so forth. I mean, you know something in that sort of case, you know that I mean, well, you, you might not know it, but you, you, you should be highly confident that something about that, that vote was, was rigged, or strange at least. Um, and so, similarly, when it comes to agreements in, in, uh, in, in groups of experts or even, even among other people, um, a 100% agreement about something that is at least somewhat controversial or ought to be uh, would be something that should, should make you uh, make you a little bit skeptical of the process uh, by which the ag agreement was, was reached. Whereas if there's a 99%, or to use a very uh, a pertinent example, I think in the, in the in climate change case, 97% agreement. I think maybe 97% is the most, is the, is the best kind of evidence that, uh, that you can have in, in, uh, for, for the fact that the climate change is caused by human activity. If it were 100%, um, then uh, you should maybe be a little bit more skeptical. You should start to think, oh, maybe the, these climate scientists don't actually allow for a disagreement. But that's, uh, the fact that there's a 3% of the climate scientists who seem to be, uh, I don't think they actually deny that climate change is, is caused by human activity, but I think, as I understand it, they uh, uh, are, are, are skeptical or neutral on it. Um, and the fact that there, there are those people, I think, should, should make you believe even more strongly that climate change is caused by human activity. And, and this points to a different part of your work as well, because you're interested in empirical data about research communities, and in particular about disagreements among peers in research communities. So, so how did you get involved in that sort of empirical research as a philosopher? Uh, well, I, I was... I was hired into a, uh, as a postdoc, as a postdoctoral researcher. I was hired into a project called "When Experts Disagree" at University College Dublin with uh, Maria Bagramian and Luke Drury as the uh, as the principal investigators. And uh, uh, one of the things we did was to uh, uh, do these empirical studies with uh, another philosopher called James Beebe uh, about how 
scientists themselves, how much they think they, they disagree with one another and why they disagree uh, and what effects the, the disagreement has. And so we did this empirical study where we compared astrophysics with uh, climate science. And the, the idea was that astrophysics is not a politically charged science. It's a science where the, the, pop, the populace or ordinary people will not have much political stake in, in whatever theories are proposed, whereas in climate science that's, that's, that's so. Um, and so we compared those cases and found some interesting results about, uh, you know, I mean, one, one thing that, that was uh, perhaps to be expected, for example, was that climate scientists are much more uh, concerned and worried that their sort of what they say is going to be misinterpreted and the fact that they disagree with a majority opinion will be somehow used uh, against them or against uh, climate science as a whole or against the, the idea that climate science uh, climate change is, is caused by human activity so there's a there's a fear uh, of how their opinions is used in the in the public domain uh, among climate scientists. That isn't isn't of course by uh, in, in case of astrophysics. Physicists. So that's that's very very interesting. It sounds like the sort of thing that the scientific communities really ought to be uh, aware of. Yeah, I mean uh, they probably are aware of this to some extent, but uh, but this was a, sort of a systematic empirical study yeah. of this case. Um, yeah, and then I've done some other empirical work. I mean, I guess it's a little bit unusual for uh, philosophers to do empirical uh, work, but um, and and the empirical work I've, I've done is with uh, with James Beebe, uh, uh, who deserves much of the credit for this. Uh, but so so one of the things that's been happening in philosophy is that philosophers have become uh, more friendly towards using empirical data in the research. They don't they don't just think think up to other theories, but they. Uh, they, uh, they think that empirical evidence is at least relevant. It's, it's a little bit tricky sometimes to see exactly how it's relevant, but uh, uh, we do think it is relevant in many cases. So I, I know that we're both interested in formal methods, logic, probability theory, and, and so on. And to some extent, these methods are taught um, to all philosophers, at least philosophers who undergo some kind of uh, research training. But do you think there's a case to be made for maybe expanding the range of methods that we teach to our students and our graduate students in particular? Yes, I think, uh, well certainly I think, I mean and now in philosophy it's, it's common for people to do quite a bit of uh, ordinary logic, right, as, as you know, Ole. Um, um, but I think we also, I mean, I, I think we should keep doing that and then we should also expand to inductive logic. Um, so that's to say, some probability theory or related theories of uh, how one, so, uh, so how one uh, reasons uh, about sort of uncertain things is, is one way of putting it. Um, and I think, be, and that's partly because most of the reasoning we do is is sort of uncertain reasoning, is inductive reasoning, uh, as 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 humans and as ordinary individuals, but also to some extent, I think, to, as as philosophers nowadays. So. Uh, one thing that's, I think, changing also in philosophy is that people are giving up on the idea that you can kind of find the, the one true idea of the first principles and then just derive by certain reasoning all the correct answers to all the, the questions from there. I think now we've sort of moved to a model of, of philosophy or answering philosophical questions where you might, might need to take uh, certain leaps uh, in your reasoning, which is what uncertain reasoning is. Um, 
and you, you have certain things that you want to explain or want to account for, and then you have a theory that's meant to account for that, but th there's a leap from, the, from the, <laughs> the things that you're trying to explain to the, uh, to the theory, and I think we've, we've become better at acknowledging that there is this leap, and then that leap, I think, is an, an inductive leap, an uncertain leap, and so we need, we need uh, our training to reflect that, that this is the type of reasoning we actually do. So I'd like to move on to a different part of your, um, your work. So scientific progress, something that you, you're interested in. And I know that you've written a paper um, going, back, going back maybe maybe a couple of years about scientific progress, where you talk about the difference between a knowledge-based account of scientific progress and an understanding-based account of um, scientific progress. So I was wondering if you could just kind of um, give us an outline of this idea. Yes. Um, so first of all, I think philosophers have a specific idea about what knowledge is that is it's quite relevant here. Um, so, so philosophers don't just mean true belief or true claim by, by knowledge, but they mean a, a true claim or true belief that's supported by evidence and, and justified in a certain way. So you have grounds for your belief, so sufficiently good grounds for your belief in order to in order to have knowledge. That's, that's a necessary requirement, as we say. Um, and I want to I contrast that with what I call or understanding, which I think is, does not require that you have good grounds for your belief. It might require that you have some grounds, but in some cases that those grounds can be uh, defeated or undermined. So, for example, by the fact that you might realize that you've been wrong about this sort of thing so many times before, uh, that you might, that might undermine your claim to be justified in believing it now. Um, and in that sort of case, I think you can lack knowledge, but you would still, I think, provided things are going well in other respects, you would still maybe understand. Um, and then another difference between understanding and knowledge, I think, is that knowledge can be kind of of particular facts that are unconnected, or you could have particular pieces of knowledge that are unconnected. Uh, Whereas understanding is, is sort of by its nature something where you connect up different pieces of, of information. So you uh, accept uh, that one thing explains or another or one thing depends on another. Um, so, uh, so I think this is important in, when thinking about science because I think what science is really uh, aiming for most of the time at least is to understand in the sense of seeing the connections between uh, two or more things. Um, so how one thing depends on another, how one thing is caused by another. Um, and the reason why we want, we want to discover those kinds of dependencies or dependency relations is that we want to explain and predict. Um, so when you predict how the weather is going to be tomorrow, you need to know what, it what the weather depends on so that you can know that if it's a low or high pressure, uh, then it's likely to be raining and so on and so forth. Um, and similarly with explanation, in order to explain something, you need to know what caused it or, or something at least relevantly similar to that. Um, and I think science is, it's the, at least the primary aim of science is to discover these kinds of dependencies in order to be able to explain and predict. Whereas mere knowledge can be something where you you, you might know some various bits of facts, but you don't see how they hang together. So you don't think, see how they depend on each other. So now it sounds like there's a, there's a tight connection between 
causal explanation and understanding. Mm. Is that right? Or is that a more specific case that you have in mind? That's how I, th I think of it as, uh, as a more specific case, because I, th I do think there are non-causal explanations. So, for example, um, you might explain why I can't divide my 23 strawberries among my three children. Well, because 23 is not divisible by three. Um, that's the, the explanation, but that's not the cause. Uh, it's not a, it's, that's not a causal explanation that I just gave you. Um, so there are at least these cases of mathematical explanations, and I think plausibly other types of explanations, maybe philosophical explanations or non-causal explanations. They, they don't appeal to causes, but they appeal to something similar. And so recently people have started to call those similar things grounds, right? So, so we talk about causal explanation and grounding explanations. Uh, but really, I think that's uh, just another term for a different kind of explanation, a metaphysical explanation, a, a um, uh, mathematical explanation, a logical explanation, maybe. So I think there are those things, but uh, my hypothesis, let's say, is, is that in all those cases, it's, it's a matter of something depending on something else. The fact that I can't uh, uh, divide my 23 strawberries among, among my three children depends on a particular mathematical fact. It's not causal dependency, but it's some sort of dependency. And then I think similarly for, for all the other cases. So I think it's always a dependency relation, but not always causal. Well, this is interesting because it, it leads straight into this question about whether or not the type of progress um, that many of us believe in when it comes to science is also the same kind of progress that we have in philosophy. And now it's, it sounds a little bit like you're suggesting an answer to that, saying that, yeah, there is the, the same kind of understanding-based model is going to apply to, to philosophy as well. And it's not going to be underpinned by causal explanations necessarily, but other forms of explanation. Is that right? That's exactly right, yes. So, uh, so my uh, tentative hypothesis, at least, is that philosophy is not at, at all very different from, from science in this respect. Both enterprises are concerned with understanding some particular uh, target phenomena that we might be interested in. Um, and those are, you know, which, which things we're interested in is going to depend on just our, our interests, just our, whatever we um, uh, might find interesting to learn about. But, but, in, but in both science and in, and in philosophy, uh, we're trying to discover these dependencies in order to either explain or predict. Uh, in philosophy, I, I suspect that we don't we don't care so much about prediction because it's a little bit hard to see what, what that would be like in philosophy, but we do care a lot about explanation. And so, uh, so, I, so I do think uh, we, 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 need, we, need, we want to discover these maybe non-causal types of dependencies in philosophy in order to use that to explain uh, certain things that we might be interested in, in philosophy as in science. Uh, but this is... Uh, this is really a topic that I'm beginning to work on right now, and I, I recently received a grant to work on this with uh, Insa Lawler at UNC Greensboro. And so we, we, we're going to look at scientific progress and, and how that, uh, uh, how sort of an understanding-based account of scientific progress might or might not apply to philosophical progress. That's interesting. So, so. Um is there a parallel here in the way that you're describing philosophy to the work of Timothy Williams and his proposed that, that philosophy is not exceptional in any sense? So it's more continuous with the, the sciences and more concretely he's suggesting that um, 
the way that we make progress in, in uh, philosophy is by something like inference to the best explanation. And I know that you worked on that as well uh, in the, you know, for the sciences in, in particular. Is that, is that a view that you're aligning yourself with? Yes, I think so. Um, I mean, it, it dates back to uh, Quine, who's a 20th century philosopher, um, who, who said that there wasn't really a distinction between philosophy and science. And it also dates back, for me at least, to uh, what I see as uh, uh, attempts that were not fruitful to separate science from non-science, like separate science from pseudoscience by, by people like Karl Popper. Um, I think those attempts were not successful, and, and they weren't successful because they, it cannot be done. I think there is no sharp distinction between science and non-science, or between science and philosophy, or even philosophy and, and everything else. I think. There's just inquiry and different forms of performing inquiry, and there's no sharp boundaries between the different <laughs> uh, kinds of inquiry uh, we have. So I'm very much of the uh, of the opinion that we, uh, we we need to see inquiry as a as a, as a uh, something that we're all engaged with as researchers or even just ordinary people, and we should draw on each other's uh, fields of expertise in order to, to progress in all this. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. So so. I you mentioned Quine, and um, although I am sympathetic with this, I'm a bit more worried about Quine's commitment to what I take to be a more sort of hardline, namely naturalism. Mm. And maybe naturalism in, in this context is kind of a, a sense in which you're restricting the available evidence to use in philosophical theorizing to evidence from the, from the natural sciences. But the way I understand you, you're thinking about kind of a more broader uh, pool of evidence. Yes, yeah, I, I guess I would resist that part of, of Quine's view uh, to, to think that only, only the natural sciences could give us the sort of evidence that we're interested in. Um, Quine, of course, was a, was a kind of a hardline empiricist in a certain way, I think, as I understand him. Um, and I, I, I don't think I'm, I'm a hardline empiricist in that way. Um, um, Right, so, so yeah, so I, I guess uh, an updated version of his view would be Williamson's uh, proposal. Um, where I also agree with Williamson, as you mentioned, about uh, inference to the best explanation, or what's called abduction, uh, being uh, central to philosophical methodology. So, so that's the idea that when you reason for a claim, uh, an uncertain claim, you uh, try to find the idea or the claim or the theory that best explains the, uh, the starting point of your argumentation and uh, what determines a good explanation or better explanation is things like the simplicity of the theory, like how much it would explain if it were true, uh, maybe uh, how elegant the theory is even, and that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm of the opinion that that sort of reasoning is, is what we do in, in philosophy and I think is probably unavoidable. But I, I've also, I've written a little bit about, about this sort of reasoning and ultimately I want to ground it or base it on uh, what I think of as a more fundamental kind of reasoning, which is a, a kind of probabilistic reasoning called Bayesian reasoning, where you sort of assign probabilities to various claims um, and then uh, see how the probabilities interact with one another, to put it crudely, in order to, uh, to reach conclusions about how likely something is to be true, uh, yeah, given, given what you know so far.
Yeah, exactly. But are are you worried at all about some of the um, theoretical virtues or selection criteria that's involved in an uh, inference to the best explanation maybe not being truth-conducive? So I know that that's a worry that philosophers have had. Yes, yeah. So the uh, the worry is, for example, that uh, simplicity or uh, the fact that a theory is simple, uh, that might be a reason to prefer it just, just because it's easier to work with a simple theory, but not a reason to think that it's true. Um, well, I, I, I do have that worry in general. I think that's a good worry to have in, in, your, in, in your background. But um, my view of the role of these so-called you know, explanatory virtues, like simplicity or uh, elegance and that kind of thing, is that they're very context sensitive. So in a certain, for certain kinds of questions, they, they might have a lot of value, whereas in other, for other kinds of questions, they might have little value. Or even, I want to suggest, the reverse. I mean, they could have like a reverse effect. So, so I would want to say, for example, that uh, in, certain, uh, in certain forms of inquiry, or let's say, uh, say medical science, for example, I, I mean, my favorite example is, uh, suppose you wanted to explain why someone is always tired. Um, you know beforehand, I think, that the explanation is not likely to be a simple explanation. It's going to be a complex one. So, for example, it might be some combination of diet and lack of exercise and maybe some health issues that are more fundamental and so on and so forth. And that's, I mean, if I were a doctor, that would be my go-to explanation, uh, I think. Uh, um, no, I'm not a doctor, but, but uh, so, uh, so in that case, I think the, the very fact that the theory is complex could be a reason to, be, to believe that it's true. Uh, so, 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 so these explanatory virtues are, are extremely context sensitive. Uh, um, and, but we can still use them. Even when they <laughs> reverse, we can use them. So, uh, so, so it's not that they are sometimes useful and sometimes not useful at all, but we need to just think about what they tell us in a particular case, I think. And, and, and I think one of the reasons why philosophers have tended to uh, focus so much on the case where, say, simplicity is a reason to believe a theory is that, I mean, in philosophy, as, as, and, and also maybe in mathematics and maybe in in fundamental physics, I mean, simplicity, I think, is a reason to believe a theory, but, it's, but that's just a particular context. When you step outside of that context, it might be the reverse, for example. So I think maybe uh, we need to have a more diverse set of examples to think about these sorts of things. So uh, another thought that I had was that in, if we're talking about progress more generally, outside the scope of your, your project, um, I think Many people worry a little bit about there being sort of bad progress, for instance, uh, dangerous technologies, that kind of progress. And I realize that, that that's not really within the scope of your work, but has a kind of um, uh, analogy. So do you think that uh, you know, progress in, in, in philosophy or in the sciences can come with quote-unquote dangerous ideas? How do you mean? What, what kind of uh, dangerous ideas? Dangerous ideas in the sense that they could um, you know, they could lead to, say, societal, um, unfortunate societal developments, uh, etc. Okay, okay. Uh, sure, I think, I think that can definitely happen. I, I do think researchers and, and scientists are, uh, in some cases, I think they need to, be, to pay more attention to their responsibilities, uh, especially as they communicate with, with the public. There's been some philosophical work on on issues of this kind, about sort of how uh, how scientists should behave qua 
uh, science policy experts and policy uh, communicators with, with the public and with, with policymakers. Um, and I always, when I teach ethics and uh, ethics of science, I always, uh, I always uh, talk about this quite a bit uh, because I think uh, philosophers or uh, scientists have a responsibility to. Uh, to think about the consequences of what they say, not just whether it's true, but also what, what, what the effect will be of saying it. I mean, some things that are true are just better left unsaid in some cases. We know that just from personal experience, I think most of us. And that's also true in the, in the scientific case. I mean, uh, certain things will, if said publicly, will, will you, you might know beforehand that it's going to be used in a misleading way. Uh, and in, and in you know our society, with uh, the sort of technologies that we have, with Facebook and uh, people sharing ideas very widely without maybe checking whether it's true and so so forth, I think maybe it's uh, becoming more and more important for scientists, to, scientists and researchers to think more about what the effects of of saying something will be. So maybe another way of of couching this talk of dangerous idea is the following. So. Um, some philosophers have tried to describe philosophical progress in a different way recently by saying that one of the jobs of philosophers is to develop or engineer, in a popular metaphor, engineer new concepts. Um, and the, uh, an underlying idea is that sometimes uh, we are equipped with concepts that are uh, defect or unfortunate in, in a certain way and we can come to have um, better concepts that will uh, serve us better, for instance, in, in, in our theories. And, and I always thought that uh, something similar happens in, in the sciences as well. Would you, would you agree with that? Um, yeah, I, th I, think, I think actually scientists or like, theorists in science are uh, they're concept engineers, I think, <laughs> to, many, to, to a large extent. I mean, uh, their concern is not so much with how a particular word or term has been used or is being used, but rather how can we use it in the most, uh, in the most useful way, or how, how can it be defined in the most useful way for, for us to uh, investigate the sorts of questions that we're interested in. I mean, one example is just how uh, the definition of the atom, for example. I mean, the original definition means, atom means indivisible, it cannot be divided. Of course, that's not true of the atom as we know it. And so uh, when it was discovered that you could you know, pick an, uh, take an electron out of an, an atom, for example, um, then the definition of an atom changed. Uh, it, um, and, 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 and more generally, I think scientists are not, not shy uh, with uh, just redefining their terms so as to make them as, as useful as possible. And, uh, I think uh, uh, philosophers are, are becoming more aware that they ought to be doing the same thing, uh, and they, I think they are, and to some extent always have been, uh, doing the same thing, where they're not so concerned with how, say, a term like knowledge is actually used, but rather how it ought to be used. And maybe knowledge is the, not the best example, but maybe terms like uh, race or uh, gender uh, those sorts of terms, I mean, maybe we shouldn't so much be asking what, what are these taken to mean in fact in society, but what should we make them mean? Uh, what meaning should we place uh, in them such that we can solve the sorts of societal problems that we uh, want to solve? I mean, we want to eliminate or reduce at least uh, racism, for example. So how can we define the concept of a, 
of race uh, most, uh, so, that, so as to do that most efficiently. Uh, and I think that's entirely uh, that's a good development, I think. So once again, I think we're on the right, the right track here. I guess, uh, uh, I guess I'm an optimist about that as well. Yeah, yeah so on that note of, of, um, of optimism, so I, I, um, I, now that, I know that now you have a, a position in, um, uh, on Iceland and um, you still have a um, part-time position in, in Norway as well as an associate professor. And you've been teaching Examen Philosophicum um, and I, I, we've spoken before about how there is a bit of a controversy in Norway. It's been going on for a long time about the value of teaching philosophy to first-year students. So now having had some experience with, um, with that, is that something that you'd like to um, um, import into Iceland? Yes, I mean, there, there used to be a somewhat similar course in Iceland, and then what happened was it was uh, reduced only to, so only the humanities students had to take it, and then uh, then it was reduced even further, so now it's almost just the philosophers who take this, this course, uh, which was supposed to be for all the other students uh, to learn some philosophy, or some uh, history of philosophy at least. Um, right, so, so my experience uh, with teaching the course was, was very po positive. Uh, I liked it very much, and I think uh, when it's done correctly, it's, uh, it can be great for the students as well. Um, I think, I think uh, I think something like this is, is very necessary and becoming more and more necessary as like specialization within the different uh, fields are, is increasing. It's some common ground uh, uh, that we can use to speak about societal problems, uh, political problems, uh, uh, or speak about how, how science or research works, how, how we make progress in society. I think that's very important, and uh, I've really noticed. You know, I've I've listened. I've been living in Norway for for. I lived in Norway for some time, and I I really noticed the difference between uh, Norway and and even Iceland and Sweden, and then also to an even a larger extent with with America, where I lived, with the extent to which. Uh, in the Norwegian media and just in the Norwegian public, they, they, they know philosophy, or at least a little bit of a history of ideas, and so they're able to speak about topics that people just cannot speak about uh, in, in, in Iceland and Sweden to the same extent. Um, and, and so it's, I think it's a really valuable thing to have this kind of common ground in some history of ideas and philosophy. And uh, it's, it's, it's something that you, you don't know how valuable it is uh, until you've lost it, perhaps, or or maybe you even then you might not know because it's a, it's a sort of thing where uh, you don't notice it uh, that that you don't have it because <laughs> that's sort of the, the the problem you don't notice it when you don't have it and the, but the discussion kind of uh, might operate at, at, a, at a lower level um, and I also want to say that you know I think university education I mean you have those a, f a few years when you're uh, often younger. Uh, that you can use to explore different topics that you might not have time to when you uh, are, are getting a little bit older, you're, you're in your career, you have, you're busy, you have maybe you have children and so on and so forth. I think at that time in your life when you're uh, relatively young and you don't maybe have so much commitments, that's a great way, a time to do something that isn't the most practical uh, thing to learn about maybe at this particular point. But you're never going to get that opportunity again until maybe when you're... Uh, 
uh, retired or something like that. So I do think that's a, it's a great system uh, with the X, uh, X field. And of course, we have similar things in, in, in America uh, where people are required to take philosophy courses. So it's not, it's not so unique, but it's, it's, it's unique in Europe. But I think it's a, it's a good thing. And as far as I know, uh, Denmark might be moving in this direction, taking up a similar kind of course. So, um, right. so, so as far as I'm concerned, I think Norway is on the right track and definitely shouldn't, uh, uh, shouldn't change so much when it comes to X-Field. That, that was the note of optimism that I was looking for. I want to end by just congratulating you again and thanking you not only for this conversation, but um, for the days that we've had together. It's been really enjoyable. It's been really enjoyable learning more about your uh, work, and I'm looking forward to reading even more in the future. Thank you, and likewise, uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah.